One of the things I'm really excited about this morning is that the uh, women get back from the uh, retreat weekend that they have had from their women's conference. I'm excited about that because I've had five children all to myself for the weekend, and uh, I'm eager for my wife to get home. I was getting all of them ready this morning uh, before worship, so I had five kids to uh, change and get breakfast and everything else. I just thought, you know, well, thank goodness I just don't have to spend a lot of time combing my hair. That just takes a little bit more time out of the schedule, and uh, that way we could be on time. Um, But grateful for what they've been doing this weekend, just spending time together in fellowship and learning more about God's Word, so we're grateful that they're going to be coming back uh, safely uh, today. I want to say a special welcome to everyone who's here this morning. Uh, especially if you're here this morning and you're maybe seeking Christ or maybe skeptic about Christ, we're always glad that you're here. We always know in a room this size with this many people, there's always some, I'm sure, who have questions. And uh, so that's one of the reasons that we're turning to First John this morning. If you'd want to turn there in your Bibles, it's towards the very end of your Bibles, First uh, John, and then uh, Revelation will come shortly after that. But we're going to be looking at chapter 1. And uh, even this morning, if you're here and you've been a Christian for five minutes, five years, or 50 years, um, one of the things that John is doing is he's, he wrote his gospel so that those who didn't believe would believe, and he wrote this epistle so that those who did believe would know uh, that God loves them. And so we're excited to, uh, this morning, just look briefly at 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through so let's, uh, let's give ourselves to the attention of the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. Let's pray. Father, a joy to come into your presence A joy to realize that you have spoken, you have not remained silent. And the word that you spoke was a word of mercy. And so, Father, we pray for your mercy to reign once again this morning. For your mercy to rain down on us as the rain fell last night. You would soften hard hearts, that you would warm cold hearts, that you would give life this morning to dead hearts. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East as well who are being persecuted, and all over the world, actually, China and other places. We thank you for their faithful testimony, even to the very end when their lives were taken last week, 21. So, Father, we pray for you to protect your church, but Lord, also use the testimony of those who cry out your name even at death to expand your kingdom and build your church. And we thank you that it's the message that John proclaims here in this text this morning that you have used for thousands of years to do just that. So continue to do that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Many of you know that uh, I spent some time in Chattanooga 
I loved it. was very excited to spend a couple of years there. I was kind of sad, though. The, literally, the day that I left Chattanooga to move to South Carolina to be a part of a church there, um, Outdoor Magazine came out with an article that said that Chattanooga was the number one place to live in America. So I thought, okay, well, I'm saying goodbye to Chattanooga. Um, but one of the things I loved doing was kind of studying stories of what happened around Chattanooga. And there's a story of a man by the name of David Gant. Uh, in 1992, at that time, he was 31 years old. Uh, he was a logger in Tennessee, and he thought it would be a great idea to go to his friend's house, pick him up, get their scuba, de- scuba gear, and go try to catch that urban myth 200-pound catfish at Lake Nickajack, right near the dam. Uh, the scary thing about those fish, though, is that rumor has it is that they hang out in caves, and so here they go, they go out to, towards the dam of Lake Nickajack, him and his friend, and tree after tree after tree has huge signs that say, no trespassing. And not only that, other trees have signs that say, danger, don't go in the water. And so they walk past every single one, put on their scuba gear, and they jump in. And so sure enough, very quickly, they, they find uh, Nickajack cave as they are underwater and they swim into it, uh, they get pretty scared because with both of them swimming and their fins uh, on their feet, it kicks up a lot of soot to the point where David Gant said that there was zero visibility. So how would you like that? To be in the middle of a cave, underwater, zero visibility, not knowing which way is up or down, left or right, front or back. And so they both panicked. David Gant went one way. His friend went the other way. Now his friend went out to the side where you got out of the cave. David Gant went further in. And he didn't even know it. And here's the thing. As he went in, he hits his oxygen tank on a, excuse me, cavers, I don't know the right, stalactite, I think. Stalactite breaks it. No oxygen. He comes up and he finally finds a three-inch gap of air in the middle of the cave, just hoping there's enough to sustain him. Well, his friend goes out, calls the authorities, tells them what happened, says that his friend is in the darkness down there, potentially drowning. Is there someone who can help him out? Uh, And there was. There was a man in Chattanooga who was known, they called him, the preeminent rescuer. And his name was Buddy Lane. And so Buddy Lane drives out to the lake as quickly as he can. He meets other authorities there, uh, police, rescue personnel, And every single one of them is telling him, this is not a rescue. This is just a retrieval. He will not be alive. So he spent most of his time above ground choreographing what he would do, looking at maps, trying to figure out what would be the safest way in and out of the cave. Twelve hours later, he finally decides to jump in. And so you're wondering, twelve hours with a man and three inches of air just gasping, not knowing if he's going to make it. You wonder if there's hope for someone like him. Would someone come down and rescue him? Would someone risk his own life to come and save his life? And see, that's similar. Obviously not identical to the story that John shares here in this text. You see, as as I reflect back on my life, and I wonder if you reflect back on your life this morning, or maybe even right now you say, I've seen plenty of no trespassing signs that God has put up. And I've walked past him. And I've walked past plenty of signs that he has said in his word, danger, don't go here. 
I know it seems adventurous and fun and joyful and pleasurable to cross these boundaries, but it's nothing but danger. And yet, like David Gant, we just keep on walking and walking and walking, sometimes just jump headlong in. And what John is writing to is he's writing to people who were or maybe are, and he's writing to us who either were or maybe are, lost in the darkness, and just wondering if there's someone who will come down into our lives, into our mess, into our darkness, into our pain, and rescue us. And so the question is, is there hope for not only David Gant, but is there hope for us as well? And that's the wonderful thing that John is proclaiming here in this text, is that yes, there is hope. That someone has come. Someone has come down and entered into our mess. And so the theme that we're going to see this morning of this wonderful rescue plan that God has enacted, the Father himself beginning, the Son himself implementing, is that God gave His Son to give you life. That's a simple theme. God gave His Son to give you life. And so we're going to look at two simple points to develop that theme. And the first one is the manifestation of God's Word. And the second one is the proclamation of God's Word. And so let's look first at the manifestation of God's Word as we see John proclaiming that God gave His Son to give you life. Look in verse 1 again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it. You see, in other words, one of the things that John is saying is something that's absolutely contradictory to every other world religion and philosophy that you will ever hear. And and that's this. He is saying God himself, notice the beginning of verse 1, that which was in the beginning, the eternal, the infinite, God himself, he came down. You see, why is that so unique compared to other religions and philosophies? Okay, Especially here, if you're wondering about what Christianity is all about, one of the unique aspects of Christianity, because not every religion is the same, despite what you may hear, is that all other religions and philosophies say, you are down here. God, or the infinite being, or whomever else you may be, he is up there. And if you work hard enough, if you're devoted enough, if you're sincere enough, if you're genuine enough, especially if you're good enough for long enough, maybe you'll work your way up. But that's what you have to do. You have to work your way up to Him by being moral enough, good enough, sincere enough. And not only that, listen, if John is making this whole Christianity thing up, that that Christ came, that He was resurrected from the dead, at least make it palatable to your culture. You see, Greeks said, God would never become human to be in this fleshly body is wrong and sinful. Salvation is actually being delivered from materiality. And so it wasn't any easier in John's day to believe this than it is in our day. Not only would Greeks hear John's message and just say, that's crazy, but so would Jews. Because in their mind, God, one being, there's no way he's a trinity of persons. And yet John comes in, and, and listen, 
He could have said one thing to make it palatable to his culture. But instead he said another, that God came down. Why? Because it actually happened. And he testifies to it, that God in his love and his mercy and his grace, he comes down. And notice that he comes down, it says, with a word of life. Look at the end of verse 1. It says, concerning the word of life. Notice the beginning of verse 2. The life was made manifest. Again, uh, towards the middle and end of verse 2, it says, proclaim to you this eternal life. So here's, here's the thing. Let's just press pause for a moment. Step back. And it's not too long from Christmas, but let's just make a journey a couple months ago back to Christmas. What makes life different for a little child at Christmas and an adult at Christmas? Okay. When you're a child, you you tend to want things for Christmas, and the gifts that are given to you are things that you might want, right? Okay. When you're an adult, more often than not, you're given not necessarily what you want, but you're given what you need, like new socks, right? You, You need new socks, you need new ties, those are new shirts, whatever else, those are the kinds of things you get as an adult. So let's just let's just give I want to give you a hypothetical situation that shows that it tends to be the case that the nature of the gift Reveals the nature of the need, okay? I have a twin brother. I love him. He lives in Muncie, Indiana. He's a journalist. And let's say for Christmas this past year, he sends me this little box, and I pull it out, and it's a tube, and on the back it says, Balding cream for my brother. Merry Christmas. What's that saying about me? That's that saying my brother, whom I'm jealous of because he has a full head of hair, um, is saying, Clay, I've noticed something through the years, and this might help you. What if my sister, who knew I used to be a rafting guide in Colorado and fairly fit, has noticed what has happened to me over the years, and she says, I've gotten you a gym membership and a scale for your bathroom for Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas. What's she implying by the giving of that gift? Clay, uh, the scale keeps going up. I've noticed. I need to go to the gym. Now, what if my parents... Uh, have been talking to me on the phone, and they notice I'm tense on the phone, and my wife is saying things in the background. So for Christmas, um, they get me a ticket to a marriage conference for, like, when your marriage is about ready to go down in flames. (laughs) Well, thanks, Mom and Dad. I guess that's what you think about what's going on with us right now, right? The nature of the gift tends to show the nature of the need. And so when God the Father gives us a gift and tells us what it is, do you see what it is here at the end of verse 1? It's a word of what? Life. And so when the gift is life, what does that imply about my heart? What does that imply about your heart? Apart from His grace. That you're dead. That you're dead apart from Him. You see, and I especially think as Christians sometimes we, we think of that, that word dead. And when Scripture in Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in the sins and transgressions in which we once walked, we think that it only looks like one way. A life of utter rebellion, like the prodigal son. You see, just all these rules that God has given, just saying, I don't care, I don't want God in my life, I'm going to live life the way I want, I don't care how it affects other people, it's all about me. Now, I don't doubt that there may be some here in this room that are living like that. And that's how death is expressing it in your life. 
just rebellion. But think of other ways in Scripture that death expresses itself. Religion. In other words, here's the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. He's going to say, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I memorized basically the entire Bible. Whenever the church doors were open, I was there. I prayed all the time. I worshiped when I should have. I sung all the right songs. I was all about the purity of the church. And yet he says, I was dead. I was dead because I thought those were the things that made me acceptable to God. That by doing these religious things, oh no, I was not a rebel like those people. I was religious. And I was working my way up the moral ladder. And Paul would say, I was dead. And again, I wonder if there's any here this morning that think just by doing the religious ritual, we think that's making me alive. Or it can show itself not just in rebellion or uh, religion, but maybe just simple indifference. Look, I'm not, I'm not a rebel. I'm not rebellious. I, I'm not even very religious. I'm just trying to live my life. Leave me alone. And so that's the kind of three general ways that Scripture can say this death can kind of express itself in our lives. And the one thing that all of them have in common is that they're seeking life in anywhere or anyone or anything other than the source of life, God himself. And so what John is saying is the word that God the Father sent that came down to us in the manifestation of God's word It was a word, listen, if you had rebelled, if you had walked away, gone in the wrong direction, crossed over so many no trespassing signs, crossed so many danger, don't go this way signs, and you heard God was coming your way, what would you expect? He's coming to get me. He's coming to take me down, and listen, it's not a word of condemnation. And it's not a word of shame. And it's not a word of punishment. It's a word of life. He recognizes we don't have life. The word was manifested and came down to give you and I life. Classic text, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So John is saying this one in whom life finds its source, Jesus Christ himself has come down to us to give his life on the cross for our sin in order to give life to you and to give life to me. So let's just step back and say, what does this mean? On a Sunday morning in February in 2015, what does that mean to me and what does that mean to you? Well, one of the first things that we can say is this, that God did not just come into the world, he came into your world. You see, we tend to think God is distant, that he is uncaring, he doesn't notice what I'm going through, and John is saying, that's wrong. I saw him, I touched him, I heard him. You see, and there was a time in John's own life, you see this in the boat when they're all scared in Mark chapter 4, and they ask Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? 
And do you know there's a time where they would no longer ask if he cared anymore? After Calvary. You never hear them asking that question anymore because when they look at Calvary, they know God cares about them. So the thing that John is declaring is that God has entered your world and that he entered into your, world, entered into your mess and he still does. That he entered into your darkness and he still does. He entered into the world of your pain and he still does. He entered into the world of your sin and guilt and gave himself for you. So as God entered your, entered your world, he absolutely has. Not only that, where do you seek life? You know, if you were to say, answer this kind of question, this sentence that keeps on going on, I feel really alive when? How would you fill that in? When I'm successful? When I have achieved certain things? When I'm dating a certain person? Married to a certain person? Whatever else it is, whatever form it might look like, it might be good things. It might say, I find life in work. Work is a great thing. It might be that we find life in things that we know God disapproves of. It's a path that he says that path leads to death. But we say, how can it be? I feel so alive. And so John is saying the only source of life, all those things, they will never give you life. In fact, they may make you feel alive for a while. But over time, the disappointment will come and will actually drain life from you. And John is saying, I'm telling you about the one who is the source of life. And when you look for life over and over and find that you never find it, the one who is life has come looking for you, and he always finds what he's looking for. Where do you seek for life? And not only that, the question this morning that needs to be asked in light of a text like this is, have you been made alive? Have you experienced this reality in your life? That God in his word says that you are dead, you have sensed that, you've felt that, and so you've claimed Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been made alive. Scripture would say that you're a new creation in him. Like Lazarus, when he was dead, Jesus came and merely spoke his voice, Lazarus, arise, and he comes out of the tomb. Have you experienced that spiritual resurrection of your heart? Where God himself takes your heart of stone, he says, and gives you a heart of flesh, a heart that alive. And so here's the wonderful thing. God in scripture tells us that he is a God who delights to show mercy. And he comes to you again today, this morning, February 2015, with a word of life. Not a word of condemnation, not a word of shame, but a word that says that he freely in and through his son offers you life this morning. If you haven't taken it, would you this morning? And you can be made a new creature in him. So that's the manifestation of the word. He's come down to us. It's a word of life for us. John has experienced this. He's seen this. He's felt it. And that's wonderful that Jesus was manifested, that he came down. But he also died. So what happened after that. Well, here's the question. If you were writing this gospel story and you were making it up, as it were, how would you write the story when Jesus is resurrected? So here he is. They're claiming that he rose from the grave. And so let me just say this. Maybe, I'm assuming some things here, but if you wrote the story, if you were writing the story, and you were very, let's say you were very sentimental, 
and maybe super spiritual. You might have it where Jesus rises from the grave and he goes out in the garden and he starts picking flowers, right? Oh, he's just so happy to be alive. Look at all this life around him, right? Maybe a little bit more sentimental, that might be what it looks like. If you're a sports fan, I mean, just think, here's Jesus. He's won the greatest victory known in the history of mankind, actually the history of the universe. And so here he comes in after the resurrection to a basketball or a baseball stadium or a football stadium with the crowd just, yeah, and he's giving high fives to everybody. And maybe if he's uh, really excited about being a victor, he does it like one of the World Series winners does, and he goes and takes a selfie with the president, right? Because he's just that good. thing is, we're not writing the resurrection story. So it's not a sentimental story, and it's not kind of a sporty story. But what if you really like revenge? What if you really like it when the people who've done wrong get their comeuppance? And so here he does, he, he resurrects from the grave. Nobody knows where he is, but finally you get word that he's at Pilate's palace. And so you run down the road, you see him right in front of uh, Pilate. He's alive, Pilate's terrified, and you just hear him say, how about them apples? <laughs> right? Uh, thank God you didn't write the story. Because when God writes the story, And the word was not only manifested, but the word of life was resurrected from the dead. He goes and he speaks to a broken woman. And he just says, Mary. And and then he goes to a group of disciples, listen, who were not expecting the resurrection. They were doubting the multiple times that Jesus said that he would be resurrected from the grave again. And so here he finds them, and they're doubting, and they're afraid, and they're terrified. They don't know what to do. Their master just died. He shows up right in front of them. And do you remember the words that he has to say as he holds out his hands? Peace be with you. See, he goes to disciples who are terrified and afraid, and listen, John can't keep that news silent. He's saying, Listen, if there's anything that Scripture proclaims as we talk about the proclamation of the Word now, it's the fear and the doubt and the skepticism of the disciples. You see, and and we tend to think, well, it's easy for the disciples to believe, but listen, they thought that no single man could be raised from the grave. It was against their worldview. If there was a resurrection to take place, everybody would be resurrected at the same time. Uh, Thomas Kuhn, who uh, wrote about scientific revolutions talks about how it usually takes a decade or more for people's major worldviews to shift. And how quickly did it shift with the disciples when they said, one, we've never seen a man be resurrected from the grave. We don't know if it's possible. And two, one man will never be resurrected from the grave because we know it all happens at once with everyone. You're expecting about 10 plus years for the worldview to change, but it changes overnight. Why? Because they saw him. He was standing right in front of them. And he ministered to them with a word, again, not of condemnation, guilt, and shame, but a word of life. You know, we're, we're a culture that cares about truth. We say sometimes, ah, you know, truth, whatever it is. You have your truth, I have mine. Uh, you know, if it's truth that works for you, that's fine. Um, but... We can't live that way. Even though we say that's kind of our philosophy intellectually, we can't live that way 
For instance, the news anchor, Brian Williams. Seen that in the news recently? Eyewitness news. Here he is. He's down in Iraq. He gets shot down by an RPG. It was an awful situation. Everybody does their job. Everybody gets out safe. But man, it was tense. And he tells everybody about it. I was there. I saw it. I experienced it. Not only that, he says that when he was in uh, Hurricane Katrina down in the French Quarter, he said it was so bad, it was flooded. He saw all kinds of things floating by there. And listen, first of all, I'll say, I'm, I can be like Brian Williams. I can embellish stories. But I'll also say that I, what happened to him when other people came out and said, that's not the way it happened? Right? Their testimony conflicted with his. They said, we didn't get shot down by an RPG. Another one did. You weren't in there. You're embellishing your story. You're lying about it. And here's one of the great things about the gospel story. Is that when these guys come out, and I mean, they could be like, let's just tell everybody that he rose from the grave, even though we know he didn't. There are a thousand people that could come out and be like, no, he didn't. His grave is still right there. And here's the thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I hand down to you what I've received. That Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. And he first appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and then to five hundred. Their testimony will not conflict with mine. It will confirm mine. I'm not lying. Luke says, I'm telling you, Theophilus, what I have carefully investigated as I've spoken to the eyewitnesses. In other words, the reason that John is proclaiming this to us is not because he's trying to lie and make up a good story. It's because it really happened. Notice he's so excited about this news he has to tell others uh, here in these verses. Verse 2, he says, The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you this eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Notice again, verse 3, That which we have seen and heard, this resurrected Christ, we proclaim to you. And so what he is proclaiming is good news. That here's the Savior, this God-man Jesus Christ, who bore the curse for Clay Werner's sin and your sin on the cross. He bore it all. And then He not only confronts death on the cross, but He conquers death in the resurrection. And John is saying, this is what I proclaim to you. And so it's so good for us to step back, not only as Christians, but also maybe here this morning if you're wondering what this Christianity is all about. It's not primarily good advice on how to live. It's not good advice on how to be moral or to have correct ritual observance. It's the proclamation that Christ was alive, that Christ died on a cross for our sin. He was laid in the grave for three days and the tomb could not hold him because he is life itself. And so he's saying, I saw this, I touched him, I heard him, I saw him after he was raised from the dead, and now I proclaim to you this life that God the Father gave for us, his son, Jesus Christ, so that Jesus could give life to us. God gave his son to give you life. Not only the proclamation of the word that he came down with a word of life, or the manifestation of the word, but also the proclamation of the word, that it's good news, it's not good advice. 
and the purpose of it all, you can see in the middle of verse 3, he says, we proclaim to you also. Notice what he says. So that. So what's the reason for it all? Why does God give us life like this? Why does he give me life, you life? So that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, what he is saying is, I don't just want to accept you and forgive you. I want to be with you. I want to fellowship with you. This word for fellowship, we could go into it in a lot of detail this morning, but I'll simply say it means a mutual sharing together. A sharing together of lives. A sharing together of our hearts, our desires, our pain. And so God shares his heart with us, especially in and through his son, Jesus Christ, and we share with him the burdens that weigh us down, the joys that we have that he's so loving. And... and if you haven't noticed, I, I, love, I love Hal so much. He's had a huge impact in my life. It's one of the reasons I'm here. I've been so glad that he spent the last few weeks talking about one of the primary ways that we fellowship with God is prayer. You see, and here's the wonderful thing. When we hear the word eternal life, we tend to think quantity of life, okay? That it's unending. But when John uses the phrase eternal life, yes, he uses it in that way, but he also means it in quality of life. He says, here's what eternal life is. It's not just life unending. It's knowing God as your Father. Christ as your Savior. And the Holy Spirit as your advocate. And so you love to have fellowship with Him. You don't have to be prodded into prayer by guilt. You long to pray because that means you have fellowship with the God who not only made you, but gave His Son to give life to you. And so here's one of the things as we step back and say, well, what does that mean for me this morning right here? And for you this morning right here, it means this, listen to the proclamation and love it. And here's what I mean by that. I'm going to embarrass myself right now. I hope you'll forgive me. The first album I bought back when there were still tapes was Vanilla Ice. And oh, how I wanted, especially those like stripes that he had in his hair. I just wanted those so bad. I wanted his kind of balloon pants that he had, kind of like MC Hammer. And uh, my mom did not want me listening to Vanilla Ice, so I listened to Vanilla Ice in secret. And I really loved Vanilla Ice, but guess what? Vanilla Ice got old, literally and figuratively. And so I listened to him every now and then, and I go, well, that's fun, but how... I don't listen to that anymore. And I wonder if some of us, um, as cheesy as this analogy is, uh, think of the proclamation of the gospel that way. That was fun once and meaningful once, but it doesn't bring me the same joy it used to. Or, again, I'm going to admit, a band I could listen to every day, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for the rest of my life is a band called Union Station. Okay, Alison Krauss, lead singer. Dan Tominski, another singer. I could listen to them all the time if you hop in your car with me. It's more than likely what you're going to hear. Because it never gets old to me. And John is saying, even if you're a believer, I hope that whenever you hear this word of proclamation, you don't say, well, I'm a Christian, I know that. You say, 
That's the sweetest music to my ears. That God would love me and give his son for me in order to give life to me. That message, that music will never grow old. I'll never discard that. I'll never throw it away. It will always bring me joy. So not just listening to the proclamation, but loving it, loving it, loving it, so that it never gets old. And secondly, that you love the fellowship that God has given to you. That it cost him the life of his own son. And now, unlike the Old Testament, we don't have to wait for one day out of the year for a great high, or a high priest to go into God's presence on our behalf. We have a great priest. His name is Jesus, and so we can go anytime we want. Say, here's my heart, here's my life. Tell me of your heart. Tell me how you gave your life. Because I simply love to have fellowship with you, my Father and my Savior. Are any of you wondering what happened to David Gant? I want to draw that back up and conclude. Now that we've seen the manifestation of God's word, that he's come down not only into the world, but your world. And he came down not with a word of condemnation, but a word of life. And not only has he manifested this word, but he's made sure through the apostles that that word was proclaimed so that we too might share in that life that Christ longs to give, so that we too might enjoy that fellowship that we have with Christ. And so Buddy Lane, the preeminent rescuer, comes in. Thirteen hours after the man disappeared, he's running out of oxygen, he's starting to get dizzy, And it says that there's a mysterious wind that blew into the cave at this point. And notice what the reporter says. It says that Gant was dying. He was quite sure of it. The cave became a white tunnel. A pair of intensely bright lights approached. Everything was clear to Gant as he peered into the blinding luminance. Listen to what he said. Your angels, aren't you? Come to take me away. And the rescuer, Buddy Lane, said, dude. We've been called a lot of things, but we've never been called angels. And so he gets him out. He saved his life. And here's the official report. Some of you, I'm sure, who might write reports uh, for uh, emergency personnel, usually they're lengthy, they're many pages. Here is his short report that actually went into the official records. Buddy Lane's official report read, found the victim alive. And now everyone is happy. That's it. But you know, the gospel is different. It's not that he found us alive. His report would say, brought them to life. And now everyone is happy. You see, we may spend our whole lives looking for life in someone or something, but we'll never find it. And we get tired. But the one who is life came looking for me, has come looking for you, and maybe this morning is looking for you. And he always finds what he's looking for. Amen? God gave his son to give you life. Let's pray.